well, we are thinking today, we're continuing this series I started last week, I was looking at how do we, how do we build a foundation, shape ourselves to flourish and live truly great lives uh, coming through this pandemic and all the challenges that we're facing culturally and personally and, and so on. And I, I said last week that the starting point, I thought, um, for sort of the, the, a reset or a refocus was on community, uh, that one of the realities of what the last two and a half years has done has been to thin out the bonds that hold us together relationally. Uh, there's been a turn inwards, as it were, to ourselves, because it's we, we're all we're working from home, going to church from home, relating, you know, we were locked up in our homes uh, at one level, um, and I think that has that has affected us. The, the levels of absenteeism in workplaces and schools through uh, ongoing COVID, through flu, through fear, the level of anxiety disorders, uh, and all sorts. The, the, there are many, many things that we can look at and go, actually, our community has been thinned out. So I think we should address that. And where I ended last week, when we looked at some of the practicalities of sin, and it, it, it may be worth your while going and listening to what I had to say, there, um, I ended off by saying one of the practical things we need to grapple with with the formation of community is the reality of sin. Uh, so, uh, and then I, I was thinking and praying about it this week, and I thought we need to just park ourselves down and think a little more about uh, about sin and community and how we address it. And in particular, this struck me because it's easy when we think about community and the formation of community to think that it's really everybody else's problem, that our community is not as wonderful as it should be in whatever way it might be. So I was at a, we host a, a, a friend of mine from here and I host uh, film nights here in the church. So every couple of months, um, he's a documentary filmmaker, lives locally, and he uh, organizes to screen well-known or interesting Australian documentaries, and he gets the directors and producers along, and we have a meal and Q&A, and, and everyone comes and watches, and so on. Thursday, Tuesday night, there were like 80 or so people from the community watching this film, and the director made this interesting comment. Um, he said, well... For the last nine years, we've had barbarians in Canberra. Now, thank God they're gone. We can start rebuilding our community. And I thought, tell me what you really think politically. But I thought, I thought that's really interesting, isn't it? If the idea that if I change the government, I'm somehow going to have better community. Now, you know, a part of what he said was true. I mean, there are external structural factors which we'll look at that either uh, enhance the capacity for community formation or work against it. The problem is, well, this is really a confession on my part. I'm not sure that the Liberal National Party government of the last nine years have made me sin any more or any less in how I treat people close to me, I actually think that's on me. I just, and, and so government has a role, but why I thought we needed to grapple with this is because 
everyone in the world, we, and we love this. We love to think if I, if I change these external things, then or everything will suddenly work out. But actually, community is just us. So if we think about how do we as a church family build community here, and then how do we function as agents of building healthy community in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, you know, the first place to start is my heart and your heart. And the place to start with that is sin. So here we go. Uh, sin can be understood as a breach of community. And I'm going to do a little presentation at, at, and, and we'll see how it goes. So feel free to stick your hand up and talk and we can make it interactive. I'd really, I don't assume uh, that you, you will, I'll explain this completely clearly. The, uh, the heart of this picture, this metaphor, you may have seen before, it comes from Christian Schwartz, a German theologian and church researcher, um, develops this idea that God can be understood as white light, refracted, uh, white light refracts into red, green, and blue. And we experience God's work in the world, in creation, on the cross, in the spirit, the green, the red, the blue, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are to draw together in this, to, to experience God in our community more. And, and really all of life can be understood and mapped on this sort of Trinitarian typology, which um, we can think about in a little while, a little more. But what that actually means is... Um, you can think of sin as a breach of community. So in Luke 10, 27, uh, when Jesus is asked, what is the essence of, our, of humanity? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So community is about love. Sin is a breach of community. It fundamentally breaks relationships apart. And so we need to think about how it breaks relationships apart. You see, with a love the Lord your God, that can be understood in the blue dimension. That's the affective worship God, give our hearts to God. With a love our neighbor, that's very practical. That takes commitment. That takes rolling up your sleeves. And it's not about feelings. It's about how do I really serve you and meet your needs? And I do that as I love myself. <laughs> like there's a, a relationship with ourselves. Uh, that is vital. And what sin does is it breaches or violates all three of those dimensions of life. It violates our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with God. Uh, so uh, that's how sin violates that. So now you go, okay, well, let's think a little more about sin. And the way to think about that is thinking about the seven deadly sins. Um, have you ever heard of the idea of the seven deadly sins? It's ancient, 1500 years of thinking around this um, from, uh, uh, from a Greek, an early church father onwards. And uh, you won't find the list of the seven deadly sins in the Bible. It's a typology of sin. Uh, and we'll think a little more about that. So one of the ways, the way a typology works is you can say, um, here's a, a picture that from um, uh, an ancient drawing on a, uh, a fresco on a church in Florence, I think, 
where on the one hand it is the, the, the seven deadly sins, and on the other matching seven virtues, and the typologies, which was used in the Middle Ages, there's the root, the trunk, and then all the sins come, and you can understand every other sin coming off this, and the seven deadly sins are seven branches, main branches coming off the trunk, but then there are lots and lots of other little sub-branches, but everything can be understood in those ways. And we're going to unpack the seven deadly sins now and help you understand how understanding the energy behind the seven deadly sins can actually be, how do you deal with that and how do you address that and transform that energy into community building energy? You're with me at this up to this point. You may not be. Uh, so to understand the seven deadly sins, you need to understand an Eastern and a Western view of sin. Now, that, this is important. And what do I mean by East and West in this categorization? I don't mean uh, uh, Australia and China. There's a different East and West in this discussion. It's the East and the Western church going back 2000 years. So the, the Eastern church, what we call the Orthodox churches coming out of uh, Constantinople, Greece, Turkey, uh, the Orthodox churches, the Slavic churches now, and then the Western churches, which are essentially based, centered out of Rome, uh, and of which the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, we're part of that Western family. We have far more in common. So, so the, the Reformation of the 1500s was really an intra-family squabble. There's a far deeper divide in Christendom between East and West, the Orthodox churches and the Western churches. And they have very different ways of understanding uh, or, or emphases. And one of the big differences between the East and the West is the way they understand sin. The Western paradigm sees sin essentially as breaking laws. So a lot of the Western church, sin is always you break the law, and the cure for breaking laws is punishment. Lots of legal on our behalf because we all deserve punishment. Uh, that's essentially the Western paradigm. Now that is biblical. It's all there in the Bible for sure. Uh, what that actually means is the church becomes like a courtroom where you all come and we get judged. Uh, and the good news is if you're a Christian, Christ takes the punishment uh, and that's wonderful. Um, as an aside, this is why the Western church is dominated by lawyers and bureaucrats. Uh, for like a thousand years, 1500 years. It's very interesting, the, the predominance of this metaphor. It also, it's also why when we turn up at Protestant churches, often it's very important to um, look innocent. Like it really is. That's why we have the magic door here. I've talked a lot about our magic door. Do you know, did you know we, if you're visiting, did you know we have a magic door? So, on your way to come here this morning, you and your partner and your kids might have been tearing strips off each other, fighting. You might have been depressed. You might have been angry. You might have been swearing at the church member who took your car park in the car park. But magically what happens when you walk through the doors, you look innocent because you're coming to court, Your Honor. Okay. So what's the Eastern paradigm? The Eastern paradigm grabs another vision, another aspect of the biblical teaching, which sees sin as sickness. And sinner's sickness means that the cure for this is not judgment, but it's healing. And this is profoundly biblical, which then the metaphor for church is the church is a hospital. 
It's not a courtroom, it's a hospital. So we're, we come to God and we get healed and God heals us. He's healing all of creation. He's renewing all of creation. Now, which of these is right? Both are right. They're both true and biblical. However, what we have to honestly grapple with is, is different whole swathes of the church have had different emphases and, and find themselves located more comfortably in one or the other. So if we sit, if we only understand sin as breaking laws, we are limited in our ability to understand how God can, how, how simply being punished can set us free to build healthy community, right? So if sin is just about punishment, then while I'm punished, Christ takes the punishment of my sin, yippee-doo, I'm now forgiven and I wait to get to heaven, which is true. If sin is sickness and God heals us, we then start to go, ah, in the healing from sin that I experience, the sickness that messes up my life, breaks all my relationships, I now start to see the potential as I'm healed, as you're healed, we can become a hospital of healed people where genuine community is possible. So we can grow. We, our, our failure to love can be healed and I can learn to love and you can learn to love. Make sense? Question, comments, words of personal testimony? Can we go to Florence? Not next year, but the year after. We'll do a um, encountering Jesus in. Uh, I have a good friend in Melbourne whose uh, whose master's thesis was on unfinished frescoes in Florence. We could ask her to come as our tour guide to look at the unfinished frescoes. Um, uh, so what we really want is a is both together. So I get healed, I get forgiven, I get healed, I get forgiven. This is an ongoing process. Um, how does this then work out at, with the work that Jesus does? So um, the essence of sin in the Western paradigm is evil. That's the effect of sin. It's the opposite of good. In the Western, in the Eastern church, uh, it's death. The consequence of sin is death fundamentally. Um, so how does Christ do this? Well, he gives us the good life. He sets us free from evil, i.e. makes us good. And he sets us free from death. He gives us life. It's how it works together. So we have the good life. It's not just a show on Netflix. It's actually a, what God has in mind for us. And you can see that, that in the Christian life, it's not just about so in, the, in our Western tradition, part of how we can think about the Christian life is you've got to become good. Stop sinning. Don't touch it. It'll fall off kind of attitude, you know, avoid that. But actually, that's only one half of the story. The other half of the story is, yes, avoid evil, become good, but be full of life. We do that so we can live eternal life, which we actually start living now. Okay, now um, let's think, we talked a few months ago about the concept of God as energy, and we start to understand and see the practical implications of this. And again, if you weren't here for that, talk to me afterwards, I can point you in the direction of some of this teaching. So um, 
here are the seven deadly sins and their various taxonomies of this. This is the most common one. Pride, gluttony, envy, greed, anger, sloth, and lust. And there are definitions of those that we could go into. Um, we won't get into all of them right now, but each of those sins is energized by energy. Now, energy is neutral. There are different kinds of energies that work in us, and these energies are neutral. The question with energy is, to what end is it directed? So the energy behind pride. So pride is the idea that I am I'm at the center. I'm better than you. Now, and it can be religious pride. It can take all kinds of forms. The energy behind pride is power to achieve, to be in control, to be at the center. The energy behind gluttony is pleasure. And gluttony is not just about food, but it's my attitude to food. So interestingly, you can, I, I read this article, you can argue theologically that even someone with an eating disorder can be gluttonous in the classic definition of that, because it's about your attitude to food and the control and the pleasure that you associate with food, your relationship to food. So it can be just eating too much. It can be eating junk food. It can be being obsessed with a low carb, high fat diet, controlling everything, all your macros. So you're in incredibly good shape. That can be gluttony, or it can be a very disordered uh, relationship to food. That's And the, the, the energy behind that is pleasure. God is a God who, del, who, is, who gives us the capacity for pleasure. And food is meant to be pleasurable. Uh, envy. I look at others and, and I envy what you have. Uh, the opposite of that is identity. The energy behind that is, I want to matter. I want to know who I am. And again, that's a good energy. Greed. Um, I need more and more and more and more. The energy behind that is sustenance, like you and I need. Like, you need to eat. You need money. You need a roof over your head. Uh, anger. And here's why we, I chose that Bible reading, lest you think this is not biblical at all. And where's the three-point sermon, Mark? Uh, well, we have like, this is like a 27-page PowerPoint presentation. Um, but the, John's gospel, Jesus cleans out the temple. Well, what's his energy behind that anger at the evil and injustice? Well, the energy is justice. And that's a God-given energy. We should. We, we should have energy for justice. But when it becomes anger that controls us, it becomes a sin that means I will now be, uh, my anger will be directed at destruction and destroying anyone who gets in my way. Sloth. Um, I love sloth. <laughs> Renewal. I, I was thinking about our culture. I think the last two and a half years, we have, we, our response to COVID has been sloth. How much Netflix have we all consumed? Yeah. Confession. Wendy asked me, we were chatting and she said, have you seen Peaky Blinders? And I said, no. But now I've seen an awful lot of it. <laughs> and I'm not the better for it. Though, though if, you wanna, if you've seen Peaky Blinders set in Birmingham, go and get your hair cut at, um, at Demon Barber. They're from Birmingham. And I'm like, I listen to these guys all. That's exactly how they sound. It's so funny. Um, a part of the thing around sloth, and, and, but renewal, we need renewal, right? Oh, the other thing is we've moved from the wellness industry is all about sloth right? I can be well, I can have all of this renewal without any effort and work. 
So we've moved from training, like the only actual way you get fit is by training to wellness. You can take a pill, you can go to a spa, you can go to a retreat and you can get well without any effort. It's because you're participating in the deadly sin of sloth. You've just not thought about it that way. But the energy is renewal. Isn't it awesome? Uh, and lust is about intimacy. And lust is not just about pornography or um, wanting to have sex with somebody who's not related to you. It's about the systemic use of uh, sex and sexuality to sell us stuff, to hold out the promise that if I have this thing, then this deep longing to overcome my fundamental aloneness in the universe will be met. Because that's the energy behind, uh, behind sex. It's actually this drive to overcome our, our fundamental aloneness. And the way that works out structurally and culturally is we're now told that if you buy this car, that deep need of yours will be met. If you buy this insurance, if you bank with this bank, if you use this hair product, and, and when, you, when we see that, we're actually participating in the deadly sin of lust. And, but it draws, can you see the point? These energies are not wrong. There's nothing bad with the energy. It's where they're directed. Okay, let me pause. Uh, questions, comments, thoughts on that? How are we going for time? Okay, buckle up. That's the introduction. <laughs> I've always thought my capacity to talk vastly exceeds people's capacity to listen. <laughs> it's, a, it's the cross I have to bear. Actually, it's the cross you all have to bear. <laughs> That's right. We need less comfortable chairs. Um, so how, how do you harness those energies in a way that builds community, that redirects that energy? And boy, this is critical, not just for how we do church, but what happens at school and in your workplace, in a new university. Because maybe we could set up a little ministry doing um, seven deadly sin consulting to do an analysis in your workplaces of how these things erode community in our places of work, for example. Question is, how do we harness that? How do you find power, pleasure, identity, sustenance, justice, renewal, and intimacy, and turn those things around in a way that gives life rather than destroys life? Well, um, here, are, here are things, here are ways that don't work. So one way, which is a very common Christian way, is the path of denial, which is to say, no, it's all bad. So uh, instead of pride and power, you submit. Pleasure, you abstain. Identity, you just conform. Sustenance, you renounce it. Justice, just calm down. Renewal, just act. Intimacy, just be clean. Purity culture, right? So that's, that's one strategy of denial. And we could unpack all of that a whole lot more. And I'm sure you can identify with that. But what often happens is you discover that is very hard to sustain and actually is quite drains the life out of a community and out of yourself. So what do you do if you don't now, and this can, you can map this in our, in the culture wars, right and left. So the cultural right uh, is all about this. This is, you know, and, and the conservative Western churches, uh, probably the youth group you grew up in, certainly the youth group I grew up in all about this. So then what happens is you discover that that's an awful way to live. And in fact, is quite counterproductive because if you take the path of denial, you're actually psychologically still deeply connected to the thing you're denying. Let me give you an example. What I want you to do for the next minute is not think about pink elephants. 
Okay. Now, if you try very hard not to think about pink elephants, what do you end up doing? Thinking about pink elephants. So when you're told, don't think about lust, what do you end up doing? So thinking about the new car you want to buy or the 52-foot yacht that you've been looking at. I mean, sorry, the, um, the Bible passage you were reading. Um, so then when you discover that doesn't work, you embrace the path of compromise. Oh, it's all just too hard. We'll make friends with this sin. So pride, hero worship, idolization, um, the real champions of the world. Oh, gluttony is, is rampant consumerism. I'll just just consume. And, and boy, this is fueled. You can see the energy behind this has fueled our economy. And uh, the, I compromise with envy and I'll become egalitarian. The Australian tall poppy syndrome. We're all the same. We pull everyone down. Everyone's got to be equal. For, you know, um, materialism. It's all just about money. The judgmentalism. Can't you see when I, when you look at the anger around in the US, for example, let's just criticize the Americans because it's easy. Um, uh, the anger around gun laws or abortion. And you go, boy, there's a heart for justice, an energy for justice in the debate of, on, both, on both issues. They're massive justice issues and they're complicated. And the energy is powerful but you can see it's sin because actually it's defaulted into, into all-consuming judgmentalism as they've compromised uh, with made friends with the anger around this and not channeled the justice energy helpfully. Sloth become a culture of... We're entertaining ourselves to death and permissiveness. Uh, we become just permissive. Well, it's okay. Uh, you know, you buy that Mercedes, it'll meet your need for intimacy, you, um, whatever it is. All right. So how do we change this? Uh, well, you harness the sins by saying, here's the energy at the center. It inevitably becomes, will lead to sin. Energy, this side of heaven, unharnessed, misdirected energy will default towards these various sinful tendencies. So um, the Bible has this vision. There's a parabola that you can construct that redirects, bounces off the energy and harnesses all the energies around the seven deadly sins into building healthy community. So energy leads to sin unless you redirect it. The question is, what is that parabola? And you know what it is? Come back next week. <laughs> oh, what? You want more? You want me to keep on speaking, do you? I just, <laughs> just, can we just everyone make a note of that? The congregation said, Mark, please keep speaking. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, that parabola is actually community. It's Christian community. It's working together. We together can become the parabola for each other and together to work with God to redirect and re-harness that energy. So a really simple way is when my energy for sustenance, which can lead to greed, bounces up against you, 
You help me see my greed, and then you help me redirect that energy for greed in a helpful way. Does that make sense? So this is very exciting. It's a profound vision of, of how you can make community and growth and life work. Let's have a look at it. It's not enough just to say no. Uh, you see, this could be a very long presentation. Um, uh, you've got the power. So let's take the top one. Um, the energy. Oh, let's no. I'll take them. I'll take them. Where was the anger one? Uh, cleansing of the temple. You take the energy for justice. The sinful expression of that is anger that destroys people. The redirection of that energy, in Jesus' case, is zeal for God's cause. It's as as Michelle prayed. It's the mic. It's loving justice. It's it's loving mercy. It's saying what I'm actually. I'm going to take this energy for justice and I'm going to use it for God's cause and God's kingdom, not to destroy my opponents. Not to get my own way, but to do what God wants. And what that will result in is loving relationships. That's the, that's the communal quality that emerges when our energy for justice is connected to God's cause and God's kingdom. Uh, we'll take another one, envy. We looked at... we briefly touched on this last week. Um, there's an energy for identity. I, I need to... I need to be special. I need to be unique. I need to belong. Um, and the temptation is to envy someone who's different to me, better than me. But the biblical vision is we're one part, many bodies. So the redirection of the, en of the energy is to say, hey, everyone is needed. In the kingdom of heaven, the way God has wired us up, everyone is needed. And so what we really want to do is do our ministry based on the gifts that God has given us. Now you think, well, that sounds very churchy. You can think about this in your workplace. How do you create a culture in your workplace? Or how do you think of yourself in your workplace? There will be people who have extraordinary, who have gifts that are way beyond yours. And, and, and they're just unbelievably, there's always going to be someone smarter than you, richer than you, better than you, thinner than you, younger than you, promoted more rapidly than you, has a bigger platform than you, whatever, has better health than you. Okay, so... The Christian answer to that is to, is to wonderfully celebrate and affirm that and say, God has given them those gifts. Now the goal is that they use them. And God has given me my gifts, and all I need to do is use my gifts to the best of my ability to love people and serve people. And you go, that's, that's so liberating. And so I will rejoice when you rejoice. When you get promoted, I go, praise God. When, when, I, get, when I don't get promoted, I go, that's okay. And you start to create a culture that is free of envy, that celebrates excellence, that holds everyone accountable to use their gifts and embraces all of life ultimately as a gift from God, right? You go, ah, it's all from God. It doesn't matter like what particular gift I have from the kingdom. What matters is how I use it. And uh, so we go on. Um, and I love that. We can talk a lot more about this um, uh, but we won't. So does that make sense? There's a whole, there's a, a 
there's a little book around this. We can teach a lot more on this. I might even, we can run small groups to think about this, but this is a vision for community, right? We, we also have a, a, a little test. If you want, if you're thinking, oh, where am I at on this scale? We all have all of these eight energies, but some of us, are, some of us, some, for some of us, the energies are stronger than for others, right? So I am, um, uh, well, also, you know, uh, and what, what matters is an awareness of the strength of your energy and then a redirection of that and a working together to say in this community. So if you look around this morning, I don't know, there's 50 of us or whatever, and you go, that's a lot of energy here for community. So how do we, how do we understand which of the different energies that we have and how do we work together to harness that for good, right? And that's pretty liberating. And you can think the same way in your workplace, in your work team. If you just work with a small, you can think about your family in this way. Your, if you have kids, your kids, you and your partner and you and your kids will all have different energies, strengths, or, or natural sort of distributions of that. And you may find that one of your one of your kids has a very strong uh, renewal energy. That is, they spend an enormous amount of time uh, online playing games. You may discover this just per chance. Now you could get you could get very angry about that, um, but you can start to then. And, and another one of your kids might be unbelievably big on have strong identity energy. And, and the risk for them is they're envious of all their friends and, you know, but your, your, your slothful kid just isn't envious at all because it takes too much effort. <laughs> and, your, and your envious kid is never slothful because they're consumed with comparing themselves to others. And uh, so, you know, this starts to help you think, well, okay, we've all got this different energy mix. Understand it. Now, how do I harness that? It's not saying to your kid who's got lots of renewal energy, just stop playing computer games. It's like, well, how do I help them spiritually find the, what they're looking for in that withdrawal and renewal? How do I find that in Jesus in a helpful way? And if you find the answer to that, you can make a lot of money telling other parents of teenagers <laughs> how to do that. Um, do you see how that starts to work? It's a, and uh, now um, one of the major challenges we face in the church around the world is that we've actually bred a whole culture of consumers. It's always been the challenge. Uh, and it's particularly a challenge for us because we live in a, 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 a like a hyper-consumer uh, culture and world. Um, this path of building community, I'm not sure if you've worked this out yet. Um, like it's really hard. A therapeutic model of church that says God wants to heal us is that's not easy. God doesn't want to just make you feel good about yourself. He actually wants to heal you. And healing can be painful. Like when a surgeon goes into work, like that can, that can hurt. I don't know if any of you have had surgery. Even with, with anesthesia, you wake up and you're in a lot of pain. But on the other side of the, on the, other side of the intervention is health. And, and, you know, that's discipleship. We all love the idea of community and you like this idea of spiritual growth, maybe, but are you willing to pay the price to redirect these energies, to die to the selfish, sin-directed misdirection of your energy?
Um, I think as a church, anyway, so I won't go on to that. There's structural presence of sin in the church and in our culture that we need to think about as well. Um, you can start to see how this works out in our consumer world, a world full of status symbols, even in churches, in our Christian world. Structurally, I love this, very German, the industrial animal agriculture feeds gluttony. The idea that I have the right to whatever food I want at a very cheap price whenever I want it. And we feed that. Do you know when you go to the supermarket and you uh, want cheap uh, mince and you feel like you have a human right to cheap, good quality mince, you may be actually participating in and enacting this one of the seven deadly sins of gluttony. I need the pleasure of cheap, good quality meat whenever I want it, irrespective of the damage that might have been done to, you know, Matilda the cow. I was catastrophic for her, but good for you. So it's interesting. You start to see all of life in these terms. Uh, the glorification of the average. Um, that's we're really talking about politics there, aren't we? Um, uh, share the maximization of shareholder value. Everything in business is just about make money for the shareholder. Really? You participate in that as a Christian, you're participating in sin, maybe. The culture of moral outrage, boy, we need to, maybe you should just preach on that for the next 12 months. Don't you see that everywhere? The structure of moral outrage on anything, on every side, and, and the virtue signaling and the posturing. And when we participate in that as Christians, we're participating in sin. Like it's not a good thing. Moral outrage as a is it's not an expression of justice in the wellness instead of training selling with sex so um here's the invitation uh if you're interested in doing a bit of self-reflection i would be delighted to give you the link to do a test that will help you understand where you where your natural energies lie and, and then I'm really happy to meet with you one-on-one -on -one to think about what the implications of that are and happy to facilitate people getting into discussion groups, small groups, to think about that, to pursue discipleship and a redirection of our energies. Small groups in churches are the best way to do this, by the way. Um, now, uh, where you get together and you can redirect that energy and you can get up close enough to each other to find the healing and the life that God intends for us. Um, what is, by the way, what is the definition in our church of a small group? How would you define a small group at Darling Street? Yeah, it's a group that is small. <laughs> like, that's it. It's very liberating. So what happens on a Friday morning with Hallelujah Yoga? That's a small group in my view. You're stretching, you're listening, you're praying, and then maybe you go out for coffee, maybe you don't, but it's a group that's small. So you go, okay, in you're doing yoga together on a Friday morning. How are you working to redirect these energies and, and build community uh, together? Um, our parish council is a small group. Some small groups study the Bible, and they're definitely small groups because they're small. Um, See what I mean? So our groups can take all sorts of forms and shapes. But if we have in mind that the best thing to do, the, the best 
benefit of a group of people that is small when Christ is at the center is it can bring us healing by helping us redirect these energies to embrace the path of growth so we can build community. And changing the barbarians in Canberra won't necessarily help us with that. You have to change the barbarian in your own heart. Now, I don't mind whoever's in Canberra, praise God for a wonderful government. I don't want that comment to distract you from the challenge for, for me, for you. Um, the beauty of our church is, well, if you ask me, I, we want to take this with utmost seriousness, but we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> the journey is serious. This is about life and death. This is about heaven and hell. You redirect your energies in this way. You're on a path to heaven. You're experiencing eternal life now. You let your energies be diffused in the direction of sin. You're on the path to hell. And actually, you're starting to experience hell now, aren't you? So the question is, are you getting more of heaven into your life or are you letting more of hell into your life? And then as we go out into the world, are you bringing more of heaven to the world of your work, of your family or your community? Or are you bringing more of hell to your work, to your family, to your community? My hunch is we should all do the former. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for your great love for us, that you have brought heaven to us. You have perfectly, the only person who's ever perfectly lived out um, all these virtues, this, this perfect life. Uh, so I pray for our church that you, you will work in us to make us disciples who work together to redirect all these God-given energies away from sin and towards righteousness, towards healing, towards the good life. I pray that you'll use us in the world, um, in a world where we're, it's easy to just see Christians as judgmentalist hypocrites, full of moral outrage, to be caricatured in that way. May we be women and men who bring a glimpse and a taste, a smell of heaven to our workplaces, even tomorrow, to our homes, to our families, to our most intimate relationships, to our friendship networks. And may, may we as a church be the laboratory, the workroom, the furnace, the crucible where these energies are redirected and we become more and more uh, full of Jesus and his life. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right. Let's sing. Great. If you'd like to stand, stand you'll sing better the the bellowing from your lungs. Mm -hmm. 